Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Quest. Do you think that spirits are a laughing matter? Or are they too grave a subject to laugh at? The animated world has been filled with reanimation for nearly a century now, making light of the specters of the deceased in order to present them to audiences of all ages. Get ready for karate chopping Game Boys, German expressionist film cameos, a book called Butt Stuff, and two exposed brains. Drop on the deck and flop like a fish. Come on and grab your friends because we're discussing ghosts in SpongeBob SquarePants and Adventure Time. So we are actually re-recording this episode because... Can you believe it? We're a little bit long-winded sometimes. And we thought that we could do these cartoons better justice. It's also been several months, not only since the first recording of this, but since we've recorded at all. So if we're a little rusty, just be gentle. (laughs) Um, But let's talk about haunted animation and the history of how we got here because I think SpongeBob was a major fixture of our childhoods and adventure time was maybe a big part of our adolescence and probably huge for a lot of younger folks in their childhoods. Right. Yeah. And they would, I would consider each of them the mascot series for the respective networks. SpongeBob was what would always be airing and continues to air on Nickelodeon and Adventure Time was inescapable on Cartoon Network. I say that as if I don't love Adventure Time. I do. (laughs) Right. But these really important cartoons were not the first to involve ghosts. There's a, a long history of ghosts in cartoons. So let's talk about that before we dive into some episodes. So let me take you through a very brief history of the supernatural in media, specifically how it's going to lead to the way we see it appear in animation. Mm -hmm. So imagery of monsters and death and the afterlife dominated early print media, magic lanterns, and camera obscura projections. And those two things are the ancestors of slide projections. There would be hand-drawn images eventually mass-produced that would be projected onto a wall or a screen for an audience's entertainment. And those eventually evolved into what were called phantasmagoria shows, which would not only have a live audience watching the projections, but then it would sometimes involve a mixed-media theatrical display enhancing this early form of animation with live actors, musical accompaniment, ambiance, atmospheric locations. One that I read about was specifically shown in an old, supposedly haunted abbey. Oh, cool. So these are kind of like Halloween Horror Nights or a haunted house or haunted hayride where it is scary, but it's also fun and you're going to be amazed and to see what types of things the the actors can do and the the producers can create for you and an immersive experience, right? Right. And so at this period also, theater and fairgrounds, which are other dominant forms of entertainment, 
would be filled with portrayals of the supernatural, like a, a haunted house or what have you. And so audiences were like really primed for a cultural experience that was dealing with these ghostly themes. <laughs> and another early one of these projection devices, the Corutoscope, was very famous for depicting these animated stills of a dancing skeleton. And when we get to the advent of animation and into the very first Silly Symphony cartoon from Disney, that famously also is a bunch of dancing skeletons. Spooky, scary skeletons. Spooky, scary skeletons. Playing each other like xylophones and swapping body parts. Tons of fun. That's, that's the kind of parties that I go to. <laughs> and this also ties into the history of silent film as well, right? Before we even get to animation. Right. And silent film is going to have this kind of animated quality because these early films are so experimental. If we think of Georges Méliès, for example, with A Trip mm -hmm. to the Moon, that camera trickery was... A major selling point. Audiences were used to seeing a live performer in the form of theater that now you have film and hearkening back to our previous episode on Blythe Spirit talking about the difference in medium, film at its advent in the in the era of silence was very invested in playing with that. So I was reading this book about haunted house movies by Barry Curtis. And in it, he says, In very few of the early films are ghosts genuinely disturbing. They are usually the anarchic force that explains the surprising animation of objects produced by impositions and stop frame. The ghost in early cinema frequently adopted a slapstick role, exploiting its freedom from the constraints of materiality and gravity. In so saying, he's basically telling us that as a means of justifying this camera trickery and also coming out of these other entertainment traditions that use the afterlife and monsters and death for titillation, we see ghosts being used to explain away why these camera tricks of silent film are happening. Uh, <laughs> diegetically that word is so hard to say sometimes that's quite a word it's actually got me thinking about how and we've talked about this before technology has an influence on the cultural conversations and i feel like we get some of that now with cgi and uh, superhero movies and uh, space movies where you can get these fantastic or sci-fi locations because they want to show off how impressive their cgi skills are and how you know what are I mean? you talking about avatar <laughs> oh i'm always talking about avatar who is ever talking about avatar this might be the first time i've ever talked about avatar since avatar came out um but anyway yeah Exactly. I'm talking about Avatar. I'm talking about entertainment that is inspired by the technological flexes of the producers. Right. And it's interesting to see how that technology goes hand in hand with cultural developments. 
returning to this history. So depictions of ghosts and other gothic themes remained popular in film from the silent era into the advent of sound. We can think about how early Dracula and Frankenstein come into the picture, pun intended. And filmmakers continued to employ these monsters and supernatural in both frightening and comical roles. Hi, Abbott and Costello. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. And the takeaway here really, which is going to be the foundation for this entire conversation, is that any time a media lets us depict things without the rules of strict reality, as we have invented media forms all throughout history, we tend to use that creative freedom to depict the spooky and the fantastical. And we are definitely going to be encountering breaking the rules of strict reality in some amazing and so fun ways in these episodes. Right. And then when we break the rules, we create tension, which leads to comedy. What a perfect transition into talking about comedy and horror. (laughs) So as we alluded to when talking about silent film, the phenomena of comedy and horror mixing together goes back past television, past cinema, past comic strips, all the way to the origins of gothic literature. There have been silly, spooky things in children's rhymes, in novels. Shakespeare. In Shakespeare. It's just part of human storytelling. And in the 1990s, there was a surge of movies and television shows that incorporated humor and horror And we can see Spongebob playing with that. We'll talk about that in the upcoming discussions of the episodes. But Alfred Hitchcock made comments about comedy and horror going together. Edgar Allan Poe also famously commented on the relationship between horror and humor. And both of these artists were great at turning the screw, releasing it with a little bit of comedy, and then scaring you again. And even the idea of comic relief, like you said, goes back to to Shakespeare. So what it sounds like what you're getting at here is that these two concepts seem like they are at odds, but we can see throughout media that they actually have long been intertwined. Exactly. And I can think of so many good examples, like we've got on TV Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the more whimsical episodes of The X-Files. His face was so blank and expressionless, he didn't even seem human. I I think he was a mandroid. The only time he reacted was when he saw the dead body. I just watched How the Ghosts Stole Christmas, the X-Files episode, for the first time. And in it, you have two comedy greats in Danny DeVito and Lily Tomlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in horror comedies and film, we've got Scream. We've got one of my favorites, Bride of Chucky. We've got Cabin in the Woods, Jennifer's Body. And even we could think about Rocky Horror as merging the tropes of the 1930s horror such as the old dark house movies with sexual liberation and camp to make one of the most incredible movies of all time how about that i like that you bring up rocky horror and also 
movies like Scream, because I think those are great examples of using horror tropes in a way that is decidedly fun and funny versus using fear mixed with a little bit of humor to give this interesting, exciting mixture of an experience. And I think we see both of those things in media. Sometimes it's meant to be scary and sometimes it's taking the scary and making it funny. So both of those things can be happening at once or you get one or the other and there's just all sorts of ways that comedy and horror go together. Right. And they're obviously going to be combined into a different formation when we're looking at children's media. Yes. I think we tend to get closer to that taking things that are scary and making them funny territory, things that are meant to feel light. Although we have shows like Courage the Cowardly, Courage the Cowardly Dog... That is so frightening, I can't even say the name. <laughs> booga, booga, booga! Ah! Where maybe it's funny in retrospect, but when you're a child and you see it, there is real fear to be found there. Yeah. And so I think as we talk about these episodes, we will elucidate on the idea that these two genres that may seem at odds are actually very similar. As we move into that, I want to leave you with this thought. There's often a statement and discussion of genre that the difference between comedy and horror is that horror never gets the punchline. And I think one really good way to think about that is I do really terribly with embarrassment humor. Mm -hmm. I have to walk out of the room on episodes of I Love Lucy. I have to cover my face during episodes of The Nanny. (laughs) And... Curb your enthusiasm. If you did not have a punchline, that's horror. These (laughs) situations that Larry David gets himself into are mortifying. Right. You want bald children with no brains? Go right ahead. I don't have to listen to you. If I want to see Larry, oh, I will see Larry. But then there's a punchline. There's a release. Yeah. And I think as we get into more horror films, we might look at whether or not there is a release at the end, because sometimes there really is. But I think that's interesting to think about, like, are we releasing these feelings of dread or these fears that maybe are hidden beneath the surface about death? etc. when we're looking at ghost media? Or is there no release? And that's when you have to sit with it. And when you feel this dark transformation after you've consumed a bit of media. So let's transform the topic. (laughs) Let's talk about something that definitely gives a release, which is SpongeBob SquarePants. What better release than laughter? And we're going to talk about three episodes of SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, one from season one, one from season two, and a very strange outlier in season 11, which is, sorry, youngins, past our time, but we went back and we experienced it. (laughs) So 
if you've been living under a rock like Patrick Starr, SpongeBob SquarePants is an episodic comedy cartoon set under the ocean near the Bikini Atoll with a bunch of talking invertebrates and fish living in a society not unlike ours. Our protagonist is the ever-optimistic and cheerful SpongeBob who works as a fry cook and has a lot of friends and one antagonistic co-worker, Squidward Tentacles, who is actually an octopus. As you're summarizing SpongeBob, it is reminding me of the experience of reading the synopsis of each episode and thinking, wow, that is absurd. But that's why it's so much fun. And I think this is what's wonderful about cartoons, and it is why they are a perfect place for us to have fun with ghosts and deal with things like death in a way that has levity and is as absurd as the idea of encountering someone who has come back from the dead. Like, it's just, it's wild, and so it works so well. Right, and as you are slightly defamiliarized from Spongebob, if you were already familiar with it, it's just worth remembering the material, the medium, that this is cartoon, it is drawn, and that is why some of these bits, some of these gimmicks are going to come up, some of which are going to be instrumental in why and how these ghosts work. Yes, so... We are first going to talk about Season 1, Episode 13A, Scaredy Pants, which is the first part. Um, And I'm just going to go ahead, for the fun of the weirdness, and read you the Wikipedia summary of this episode. Are you ready? Aye, aye, Captain. Are you ready? I'm not doing this. Okay, fine. SpongeBob is tired of always getting scared on Halloween and being called scaredy pants. So he decides to dress like the Flying Dutchman to get revenge. For his costume, SpongeBob realizes that a real ghost has a round head and that he has a square one. Patrick shaves SpongeBob's head, making it round. The real Flying Dutchman appears and explains to the people how offended he is by people dressing up as him for Halloween, and that SpongeBob's costume is the worst of all. He takes off SpongeBob's costume, which reveals that his brain is exposed as a result of Patrick's shaving. Subsequently, everyone runs away, including the Dutchman, leaving SpongeBob satisfied to have finally succeeded in scaring everyone, including Patrick. You know, what's funny about that synopsis is that they really leave out a lot of the settings and explanations, like, where are the people? Well, the people are at a Halloween party. Or why does Spongebob know what the Flying Dutchman is? Well, because Squidward and Mr. Krabs scared him by telling him a ghost story about him. Yeah, these are really the the bare bones, or should I say the bare brains of this episode. (laughs) Nice. Thanks. But... You get the idea, and I would encourage you, if you are listening to this, to go back and watch these episodes. They're easily findable on Google, and you can get the play-by-play. We'll probably also insert some clips in here for the effect. Um, But to keep it brief, it's Halloween. SpongeBob is 
being made fun of because he is truly afraid on Halloween and is acting like a man child as usual, as he tends to be just purely naive. And in a way that I think I have a note here that says he's super sympathetic. He's so optimistic, even in the face of his fears, he's trying to overcome them in such a pure kind of way. And there's really a sweetness in the way SpongeBob deals with Halloween that I think is relatable for children, or at least it's a good role model, I think, for children. I think a thing that's interesting about this episode, and we'll contrast it with the next two, is that that synopsis says that SpongeBob is always being called a scaredy cat, but he is only scared because Squidward and Mr. Krabs team up to tell him a story that they know will scare him. In one of the future episodes we're going to talk about, SpongeBob is just kind of actually scared of everything. But in this one, there are actually actors causing that from him, which I think is part of what makes him sympathetic to not just anybody, but specifically a child. A child does not think, I am scared of everything. Everything is liable to trigger me in that way. A child just thinks that there are a bunch of scary things out for that reaction. Right. And also, in a certain way, it's like a child's initiation into Halloween and how people want to intentionally scare each other, which might be intuitive. Kids play pranks. Kids play peekaboo. But at the same time, the fact that we have this entire holiday structured around giving each other a fright is sort of overwhelming, especially for a character like SpongeBob, who is so sweet and optimistic. I think it's interesting that he, speaking of being initiated into Halloween, his desire really is to be a part of it once once he realizes that he's afraid and that he's being ostracized. And so I love that SpongeBob ends up becoming the horror. At first, he's kind of trying to pretend to be scary. And there's this theme of you can't be what you aren't. Everyone can see through him. They can tell that it's SpongeBob under the sheet because of his square head. And there's almost this implication that monsters are essentially monsters. And we we see that with the Flying Dutchman when he interferes and says, Let me tell you about Scary Kid. There's all kinds of scary things in the world. Spiders are scary. I'm scary. You, you're not scary. And when we talk about you know, punchlines and comedy, this is set up. We are laying it on thick for most of this episode that SpongeBob is not scary. So then at the end, the punchline is when he becomes scary when he's not trying to. Yeah, it's this unintentional scariness that makes it funny. And also, it's totally intertwined with some of the most disgusting body horror If this were live action and we saw SpongeBob's brain, I mean, I already go, ugh, when they show his cartoon brain. But there's this amazing mixture of something so horrifying that 
even the ghost in the episode is scared. And also something so funny, because like you said, there's a great setup with an amazing punchline payoff at the end. And can we talk about the Flying Dutchman? Yes, please. So the Flying Dutchman is named after a notorious real-life haunted ship, which is also particularly funny because they also use the trope of Davy Jones' locker throughout Spongebob, Mm -hmm. not in this episode, I don't believe. And it's funny when you think about that in comparison to Pirates of the Caribbean, where just Davy Jones is a character. Well, and another connection that I noticed between the Flying Dutchman and Pirates of the Caribbean is, have you noticed that the Flying Dutchman has little blackbeard braids? Yes. And so they play with that imagery as well in Pirates of the Caribbean, but in a much more serious way. Although even that's a little bit of a joke. I don't know if you remember the moment where a guy lights his beard on fire in the Pirates of the Caribbean series. And it's sort of a gag, but it's also really horrifying and scary. And you can imagine how that sort of imagery would have frightened Blackbeard's enemies. He's, he supposedly, the, the legend goes, that he put gunpowder in his beard. I I don't know all of the details. Um, we're not a pirate podcast. We are not a pirate podcast, but we are a ghost podcast. So the Flying Dutchman has the classic Blackbeard pirate imagery around him. He's green. Why is she green? He's green, which we will see throughout our episodes being associated with ghosts. He sometimes lives on his ship, which is also called the Flying Dutchman. And sometimes he lives underground. So when we talk about uh, absurdity and inconsistency, if we want to get really heady about it it's it's the ghost living in between realms and we don't know where he lives uh sometimes he lives on a ship sometimes he lives on his cousin's couch no i just made that up um so (laughs) what else do i have i have some some bullet points about the flying dutchman here well what about the soul stealing he has been known to steal souls or pickles and we get a little bit of the, the history. He, he's, he's a ghost that has unfinished business, which is going to be a, or, or has not been put to rest. Those things are a little bit different, but they overlap. It's this idea that, that there was some lack of peace during life that carries on into the afterlife and allows, or inspires the ghost to come back. And we're going to see that over and over and over again. It's a trope with ghosts across cultures. His unfinished business or his lack of rest comes from the fact that his body was used as a window display after he died. And we find this out in another SpongeBob episode where Squidward is pretending to be a ghost so that spongebob and patrick will do whatever he says i forgot about that one i wrote here lies squidward you may not remember him but he Ah! oh hi squidward yeah we will have to be having another episode someday about spongebob and ghosts because unfortunately today we won't be covering one of my favorites which is shanghai i have an idea really what 
is it? Let's leave! But the door is locked, and the only way out is through the perfume department. Yes, that's a great one. Squidward the Unfriendly Ghost is the one that I'm referencing, and that's where we get the backstory that the Flying Dutchman haunts the seven seas because he was never put to rest and he was used as a window display. That's, like, really grim. That's, like, when you actually start to think about that, like, that's a corpse. So that's a great point, and I think what sells it, and I think where the scary and the grim meets the funny is when you see the image of him in the window display, it looks like the goofiest kids' carnival <laughs> display, and he he looks almost bewildered, like, oh, darn, they, they got my body. <laughs> um, and so I think that's another great example from a different episode of the levity meeting the grim and body horror. What else can we say about him? A few more things. Oh, you mentioned that he escorts people to Davy Jones's locker. So he's, <laughs> he's got this sort of uh, psychopomp. He's a psychopomp. <laughs> he, yeah, he's he is a what? What's the Egyptian god that transports people? Oh, there's a lot. In okay. Egypt. Oh. I mean, there's Hermes in Greek mythology. Right. There are the Valkyries in Norse mythology. There are that that is what a psychopomp is. The psychopomp is the deity that guides souls to the underworld. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So he is a psychopomp. He's also sometimes a vegetarian. He won't be able to eat us because. I wish that the Dutchman was a vegetarian! But we won't go into that. But twinsies. (laughs) So, the Flying Dutchman in this episode is really used for the punchline that Spongebob is able to scare the scariest thing, which is a ghost. But something that is interesting to me about the Flying Dutchman's use in this episode and in other episodes is that He's really integrated into the community of Bikini Bottom. He's othered in the sense that people are afraid of him and he has become a legend. He literally lives separately. He does. And yet there's this lack of surprise that he is a part of all of this. And he has social commentary to share about people's depictions of him and gets to speak his piece this is my culture not a costume exactly he has that moment even funnier because we have the play of the literal with spongebob wearing the clogs and then i believe at one point patrick is swinging him around the room Mm -hmm. so he becomes the flying dutchman yep (laughs) so he really is wearing a culture as a costume even though it's not Dutch. And by the way, the Flying Dutchman has a Scottish accent. Does he? Yes. I just According always interpreted to SpongeBob it as, Wiki. See, I always interpreted it as a pirate accent, which well, I think is a thing that lives in the cultural consciousness. Right. But Quest, it's not Dutch. <laughs> that's true. Period. And that's on period. Let's go on to the next episode, yeah? I wanted to say one last thing about that episode, okay. which is that I, the takeaway is the scary thing is intangible. The scary thing is also kind of the threat of damnation with mm-hmm. 
the Flying Dutchman. And what is scarier than the intangible, the ghost, the threat of damnation, but the physical abject brain body horror? Yeah, the abject. This uncanny thing that is part of us and also a symbol of our annihilation. Yeah. That is the most horrifying thing of all. And I think that's just so interesting and I, you know, a little bit, no pun intended, heady of a conversation for Spongebob, but just this play of the incorporeal and the corporeal. Yeah. And I haven't fully thought this out yet, but I think there's also something to be said about the fact that he is a cartoon sponge. He's not really supposed to have a brain. He can have whatever he wants because it's a cartoon and anything goes. But part of the horror is that he does have a human brain. And that is uncomfortable in itself because it's human, but not human. It's me, but not me. And we we see ourselves in it, but it's twisted in a way that makes it uncomfortable, which is just so fun. Yeah. And that moment is our punchline that, oh, you're not scary. Oh, you're not scary. Oh, you're not scary. Yeah, and the same thing happens, the same sort of beats of comedy happen in the next episode we're going to talk about, which you may not have heard the title of, but you definitely know the ghost of. This is called Graveyard Shift. It's from season two, episode 16, and it is the hash slinging slasher episode. Now, before I get into the summary of what happens in this episode, I just want to bring up one of our monster theory theses, a single thesis, which is the monster's body is a cultural body. Because this episode is very much from modern American culture. It's all about workplace shenanigans. I guess I'll bring in some of the summary here, which is that SpongeBob is the most enthusiastic fry cook of all time. I'm ready, I'm ready. Squidward! Squidward! Squad! I'm ready, Squidward! He loves working. He is asked by Mr. Krabs to work the night shift, which he's never done before. And Mr. Krabs is having him do this, and he's having Squidward, his co-worker, do this. Mr. Krabs has invented this night shift right now when he realizes that there are people who would get Krabby Patties after closing hours. Yeah, so he wants to make more money. So he adds a night shift to their hours. Oh boy, 3 a.m. And Squidward begrudgingly takes this night shift. SpongeBob enthusiastically takes the night shift. And throughout the episode, he is very excited that he's doing all of his work duties. At night! Until he has to step outside, at which point he does reveal that he might be a little trepidatious about the exactitudes. Whoa. Using (laughs) all of our five-letter words. No, five-dollar words. (laughs) We are not swearing, but we are intellectuals. (laughs) That's a four-letter word. (laughs) So Spongebob has to go outside to take out the trash and he gets really scared, at which point He's trepidatious about (laughs) the falling of the... (laughs) 
I can't think of another word for night. Um, <laughs> he's afraid of the dark, essentially. Thus. Thus. Squidward tells him the story. Yeah, and so the other aspect of the cultural body of this ghost is that we are talking about a tradition of urban legends and usually children, but sometimes adults too, scaring each other with stories about ghosts. So I guess we should talk a little bit about this urban legend. I I can't tell you every single detail, but maybe we can insert a clip here of Squidward telling Spongebob the story of the hash-slinging slasher. Years ago, at this very restaurant, the hash-slinging slasher used to be a fry cook, just like you, only clumsier. And then, one night, when he was cutting the patties, it happened. He forgot the secret sauce? No. He didn't wash his hands? No. Irregular portions? No! He cut off his own hand by mistake. You mean like this? Or like this? Or this? Or this? Or this? Except he wasn't a sponge. So? So it didn't grow back! And he replaced his hand with a rusty spatula. And then he got hit by a bus. And at his funeral, they fired him. So now, every... What day is it? Tuesday. Tuesday night, his ghost returns to the crusty crab to wreak his horrible vengeance. What I do want to point out is that the hash slinging slasher is a fry cook ghost. He's a working class ghost. And a lot of the horror around his haunting has to do with getting injured on the job or I guess getting killed on the job, if I remember correctly. He cuts off his hand while chopping the lettuce, I believe. And then he gets hit by a bus. Yeah, he dies on the job. And then, to make matters worse, he's fired at his funeral. And you can see SpongeBob is visibly distressed by this fact. The idea of being fired. Posthumously. Ever. Fired ever, dead or not, is maybe the worst part of the whole story. So SpongeBob (laughs) screams so much that even his eyes are screaming. And Squidward is having fun with this, although I don't think he intended to rattle SpongeBob quite as much as he did. At the very least, he didn't mean to provoke further annoyance for himself. Which is what Spongebob does by screaming so much. Right. And so, shenanigans ensue. Squidward admits that he made it up. And in the very end, the hash-slinging slasher seems to appear. Which, that's our our punchline. Well, it's like... punchline one, It's punchline one. It's a one-two punch. (laughs) And uh, punchline one is that Squidward is starting to feel that he the story that he made up is actually real. And he starts to get frightened as a shadow with what appears to be a spatula for a hand descends upon the crusty crab. Punchline two 
is that this turns out to be a guy who wants to apply to work at the Krusty Krab. He wants a job interview. So he's just holding a spatula. What it's, He doesn't have it for a hand. It's uh, stuffed into his very long sleeve. There you go. There's actually a punchline three as well. Yes, which I think we should save for a little bit. Okay, we'll make you wait for our our boy. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about this whole situation. We'll talk more about urban legends and how those factor into the writing of cartoons and the, the antics of cartoons when we talk about Adventure Time. But it's worth noting that this is a comedic way of processing something that is very much a part of our culture, right? Right. And it's something that appeared in the previous episode, too. Scary stories and then the scary, the horror object of your scary story appearing. That's the central plot of both of these episodes. Yeah. And in one, the horror object is real but not as scary as you were and in this one the horror object seemed to be real but wasn't yeah and they both play with this idea that we can create hysteria just with the stories that we tell or in in the case of the other episode spongebob is trying to make people hysterical and trying to scare them but failing to have the same effect and the same power that squidward has in this episode of really creating a monster with his mind. Right. And a thing that I think that is so interesting about this episode, because there is a lot of Marxist analysis to make about <laughs> this one. Oh, yeah. Call the IWW for Mr. Krabs' <laughs> <laughs> workplace violations. But the fact that the things that Squidward invents around the hash-slinging slasher in the story they are all related to work, hurting yourself on the job, getting hit by what is many people's transportation to and from work, especially especially people of lower income brackets, and then also getting fired after you're dead, adding insult to injury. But also the elements of the haunting are all related to things that are possible at a workplace. Mm -hmm. The lights will flicker on and off, the phone will ring and no one will be there, and then the hash-slinging slasher will pull up in the bus and get you. These are anxieties that are particular to the experience of working at a fast food restaurant. Right, and the walls will ooze green slime. Oh, wait, they always do that. <laughs> I'm telling you, you gotta... We gotta Call somebody. OSHA. OSHA. Call OSHA. 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 Ocean. Thank the ocean you. Division, I was thinking it. The ocean division. Um, and so with the playfulness of a cartoon, we are able to interact with real fears that people might have, real harmful situations that people might be put into, Nobody likes to take the trash out alone, especially during the night shift when there are real threats out there for workers. But this cartoon environment and the fact that SpongeBob acts childlike, which I keep bringing up, but it really is a big feature of who he is. He lives in this space between 
30-something-year-old man and child, which is the, the... Both of those are kind of the target audience of SpongeBob, right? It's parents and their children. I have vivid memories of watching SpongeBob with my dad, and he was loving it as much as I was, and probably for different reasons, you know? The fact that SpongeBob is acting so childlike about this, but he has adult concerns, makes it poignant as a ghost story in a cartoon. Yeah, so I have been reading, this is such a, we're dragging more theory into this, I've been reading The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, which I I can't say that I recommend it, it's so Freudian, but one of the things that he talks about, he's discussing the importance of fairy tales to child psychological development, and he talks about the ways in which the child is supposed to be relating to the main character. And I think the idea that SpongeBob has a childlike mentality but is put into very adult situations is part of what makes him so relatable for a child and what makes him, you were saying earlier, like a good role model. He is somebody that the child can project onto and see themselves in, but the scenarios are not identical to their own so it makes it more fun and it gives them a certain remove from the situation so though spongebob is being bullied it's at boating school and he's a fish and all of these things are different so you can project your own experience onto it learn from it and apply it without getting so hung up on oh but my situation's different it's a sort of translation effect yeah and we have talked about how monsters have a similar function for society and people of all ages right a ghost is the kind of creature that might enact things that either remind us of death scare us or the ghost maybe gets revenge or does something that we might want to do, but is not within the possibility of our everyday experience. And so to see that at a distance in a story, especially when it's silly like this, is is kind of a similar function. And speaking of what the ghost wants to do, there is the embedded irony that you don't think about on the first go or maybe ever when you're a child that the problem in this episode is spongebob and squidward are made to work this graveyard shift right and then the problem transforms into the appearance of the mash pinging the sash ringing the hash singing slasher and he is a blessing in disguise he is another applicant at the crusty crab who would feasibly give them reprieve. They would not have to work the graveyard shift if Mr. Krabs would take on more employees. Right. Although we know Mr. Krabs is not going to take on more employees because that's too expensive. (laughs) I don't pay you to breathe. You hardly pay us at all. I also, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but before we kind of wrap up SpongeBob and look at one last episode, I was looking at thesis six which is fear of the monster is really a kind of desire 
And I can't help but think that maybe this is just me projecting, although I think a lot of people can relate to this. The hash-slinging slasher being this undead fry cook could maybe be a representation of our desire to escape work and that there's this haunting fear that when we die, it will continue to be the same kind of drudgery. And so in a certain way, the thing that makes the hash slinging slasher so scary is that he is a fry cook even in the afterlife. And maybe there's also this desire for revenge, right? He's coming back and and getting back at the world that created this fate for him. So I promise this will be a short tangent, but in Haitian folklore predating George Romero and Night of the Living Dead, the zombie was not this infectious thing that we think about it nowadays. The fear was that after you died, you Haitian, we have to think about the history of slavery there, Mm -hmm. that somebody would reanimate you and make you work more after you had died. And I think that having that folkloric knowledge is so interesting and really shapes how you consider contemporary zombie media and how it's been shifted and appropriated, which is huge discussion, another episode. Right. But I think that that is a present fear in this episode and a present fear in the the collective unconscious yeah and even that your body is being exploited in life translates into this exploitation in death yeah i can totally see the connection there so we would be remiss not to talk about the final seconds of graveyard shift Mm -hmm. and one thing that is going to come up as we talk about the absurdity of these cartoons and the cultural commentary that they are making that is baked into them is a postmodern discussion where each of these episodes of all of these, uh, both of these shows, are taking elements of pop culture and regurgitating them. And I do want to point out that the hash-slinging slasher not only might bring to mind Candyman with his stump hand, but also the infamous man-door hand-hook car door. (laughs) And also even just the trope of a pirate with a hooked hand. Yes, which you pointed out before, and I hadn't even thought of that. But at the end of the episode everybody's favorite moment we've revealed the hash slinging slasher is a potential employee everyone meaning spongebob squidward and this non-hash applicant yeah and this i was gonna say the non-hash slinging slasher the debunked slasher they're they're standing there And the lights start flickering. Because we've explained that the phone calls were the potential applicant getting nervous and hanging up and not wanting to go through it. And we know who he is coming in to the establishment. We understand why it looked like he had a stump, etc. It's all been explained. Except for the lights. And so in the third punchline 
And forgive me, comedians, if, if you're like, that is not how comedy works. But work with me here. The third punchline is the reveal of who is flickering the lights. And nobody is afraid because it's their good old friend. Nosferatu! And so you actually see this... Still. This still of Nosferatu that, who's been animated to flicker the lights with his little and after they Nosferatu say hand. Nosferatu in their oh you tone oh, you. he is made to smile <laughs> they have manipulated the image it is so wonderful now we can cut this if you want okay but I did get a certain amount of production understanding of what was going on there not why they chose Nosferatu mm-hmm. but there was a cut gag earlier in the episode that SpongeBob had to deliver mail, and mm. like maybe that was one of the tasks, I guess. And Squidward's like asking him who he's delivering the mail to. Yeah. And SpongeBob says, and I can't remember the name of the character, but that he's delivering it to floorboard something. It's like floorboard Mike or something. <laughs> and he like just opens the thing and drops the mail in, which is a similar gag, right? The fact that this is kind of absurd and should be frightening that apparently there's somebody living underneath the floorboards or whatever that's its own horror trope and at the end originally that character is who has been flickering on and off the lights and he is literally just a bunch of floorboards with like arms and legs (laughs) but they cut him so they needed to replace him with something yes and apparently this just completely absurd reference to german expressionist horror ripoff of dracula nosferatu that no child not even my spooky ass was familiar with it's totally possible that this introduced both of us and many kids all over america to nosferatu i can't imagine that it didn't yeah it's and i could just go on about how much i love this but i i think that the absurdity of pulling in something as highbrow as Nosferatu and putting the actual image, the actual still from the film in there just says everything about the way that SpongeBob interacts with ghosts and horror and the Gothic. And it's just a delight. And I'll add one more thing in. So I saw Nosferatu for the first time this year for its centennial. And so cool. It was with, with a, a live orchestra, live orchestra, right? Yes. Yeah. And very Los Angeles. One of the things we can talk about with this relationship between horror and comedy is how the things that once were horrifying can be recycled as comedic. Especially when they have become a familiar part of the cultural consciousness. Watching Nosferatu becomes rather comedic with the kind of horror that we look at nowadays, there is an extended sequence where Count Orlock is carrying his own coffin and just, like, running down the streets of town with a giant-ass coffin. You can tell that it's daytime, but they're pretending it's nighttime. And it's so silly. But you have to imagine that an audience at the time did not think so. Mm -hmm. And the way that what was once this icon of horror is now funny. 
It's interesting that you bring that scene up. It's been a while since I've seen Nosferatu, but I recall being entranced and not scared, but taking seriously the image of Nosferatu as a monster himself, even watching it five or ten years ago. But what works in this Spongebob episode is the fact that there is still something creepy about a man with very long fingers and fingernails and who who looks like a corpse who has risen from the dead and, and looks uh, almost for, you know, a more contemporary to SpongeBob cultural reference, almost Voldemort like being made the punchline. And sorry, one last thought the medium difference. You have live action in this film still contrasted with these 2D animated characters. Which Spongebob also does very often and very well with those hyper-detailed close-ups that the artists will draw and and bringing in various clips from popular culture. Or the, the gorilla suit and right. Santa and Patchy the Pirate. Yeah, and and just bringing those things in enough so that they'll have a punch, but still using it as a recurring device. In fact, it will occur, well, there's a lot to talk about medium with The Legend of Bukini Bottom. All right, I'm going to read the Wikipedia <laughs> summary of this, but only the very brief summary, because... So much happens in this episode that I think we'll just bring up the parts that are important to what we want to discuss and we'll leave the rest because it is a Halloween special and so it's a little longer than a usual Spongebob episode. Here's what happens. In this special stop motion episode, Spongebob insists that scary equals funny on Halloween. This bothers the Flying Dutchman, who tries to scare him for good by capturing his friends. Let me just say that capturing his friends is perhaps the greatest understatement of all time. Because this is what the Flying Dutchman does in order to scare Spongebob. In some sort of strange way, it's almost like the Flying Dutchman is coming full circle and trying to get back at Spongebob for his brain reveal back in season one. Uh, But that's not really the storyline. It's self-contained in this episode. Anyway, the Flying Dutchman tries to scare Spongebob by killing his friends and putting their ghosts into cages in a dark ride that he has created to scare Spongebob. He kills his friends. Patrick dies in the doom buggy that Spongebob is being carted around in. Patrick Starr found dead in Miami. (laughs) So, um, so, So this episode, I wanted to bring up partially because it is a mixed media episode. And I thought that was interesting in terms of the history of ghosts and cartoons. We have Muppets in this. We have most of the episode in stop motion. We also have an animation sequence that's inspired by... The Yellow Submarine. Yeah, that's inspired by the Yellow Submarine. There's a lot going on in terms of 
bringing everything together. There's also a sort of heavy-handed conversation between SpongeBob and Patrick about how scary equals funny, which is what we've been talking about this whole time in this episode. Uh, But it is a little bit strange to hear a character say it. So here's a little quote from that part of the episode. SpongeBob, why are you hiding in there? You'll miss all the scary stuff. I don't want to see the scary stuff, Patrick, okay? I admit it. I love trick-or-treating, but I am too afraid to go out on Halloween. SpongeBob, don't you know the old saying? The only thing you have to fear is... Yourself! Stop staring at me like that! No! See? It's all in your head, SpongeBob. You just have to remember one simple trick, and that is scary equals funny! And so the motto of scary equals funny recurs throughout the rest of the episode. And I know that this isn't a movie review or a television review podcast, but I will say that a thing that kind of irked me about this is that SpongeBob goes into his first terrifying situation, bringing back the abject. They're doing that trick where you you touch the peeled grapes and it's eyeballs in a jar. And SpongeBob just immediately goes to, oh, scary equals funny, and starts like laughing and continues that throughout the episode, which it wouldn't have been very hard to put SpongeBob in this scenario, have him initially be afraid, and then have to think about it and become fearless. It would have been such a small yet powerful writing decision, but they did not do it. Instead, he gets this really literal directive from Patrick and decides, yes, I will follow those rules. And that's what creates the forced character development. And the other thing that I think is really funny here is it's all in your head, SpongeBob, Because not only is that going to be the climax of the episode, the solution to the problem, but also, in the past, that was the solution to our problem, too. It was all in SpongeBob's head. His brain. Let's talk about SpongeBob's brain in this episode. In this episode, SpongeBob's brain is not horrifying to the viewer. We have some dramatic irony going on here. The viewer sees SpongeBob's brain as the most blissful psychedelic experience full of love and sunshine and happiness and rainbows like a leslie gore song (laughs) sunshine lollipops and rainbows and this is where we get that yellow submarine style animation Uh, and the way we get here is that the Flying Dutchman has been really frustrated with the fact that Spongebob is no longer afraid of Halloween scares. And so he's been doing all of these elaborate things to try and scare SpongeBob, including, as we mentioned, creating an entire dark ride that is very clearly based on Disney's Haunted Mansion to frighten him. That doesn't work. He captures SpongeBob's friends and kills them and puts their souls in cages. And SpongeBob thinks that it's a joke and isn't afraid. And so finally, he takes Patrick's soul, correct? Who is, Patrick is the passenger in the little cart buggy. With SpongeBob. Yeah. And he has been frightened on the dark ride. Patrick can 
tell when something is actually supposed to be scary or when it is supposed to be fun. Right. And so SpongeBob starts to become frightened when he sees that Patrick is dead. But I think if I remember correctly, it doesn't fully have the effect that the Flying Dutchman wants. And so the Flying Dutchman goes to... He's summoned Plankton, and I think Plankton yeah. doesn't get... I, I'm, I wouldn't say killed as much as, like, desold. Right, and Plankton has been in SpongeBob's brain before, so his advice to the Flying Dutchman is... You couldn't frighten me in a million eternities, kid! I think he could, master. You've never seen what's inside his brain. His brain? Ah, what's scary about that? And they go inside spongebob's brain and it is this yellow submarine style cartoon that is i think it's got its own song i think so yeah and it's very wholesome and bright and colorful and full of saccharine love and this scares the flying dutchman so badly that he gives up on his entire plot and so we have this twist that, again, we're not reviewing, but it's a little less satisfying to me than some of the earlier episodes where the comedy feels a little bit more natural and or maybe well planned, which is the opposite of natural, but comes off as more natural, where SpongeBob is able to frighten the Flying Dutchman away simply by being who he is and with his brain. Right. I would say that the moral of Graveyard Shift is be careful about scaring someone else. You might scare yourself. Mm -hmm. The moral of Scaredy Pants is something along the lines of there's always something scarier or even the scary things can be scared or we could go the really heady route of something like... The, the scariest thing is what is hidden within yourself. You don't, The things that you manufacture can never hold up to the true horror of your own body. Right. And The Legend of Bukini Bottom, I would say, has a moral for children along the lines of scary is relative. Scary yeah. equals funny... Maybe, but scary is relative, and what one person finds scary is not necessarily what somebody else finds scary. There's definitely some fun to be had in the idea that ghosts might be afraid of things that are pure and light. But, meh. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping up The Legend of Bukini Bottom, I do want to go back to this idea of medium, because that's apparently what I'm fixated on today. Which is a we've when have you not been fixated on medium? Thank you. <laughs> I was gonna do a Teresa Caputo, but I can't because there's like a crap load of spirit here right now. I didn't mean to say it like that. I'll let you go on then. So, looking at the history of animation, we've already discussed how it connects to themes seen in in fairgrounds amusements mm -hmm. and the use of a carnival ride or a dark ride as a plot point is very interesting in that which is also really interesting i just saw wendell and wild which 
has a ghostly fairground as a central part of that movie (laughs) animated as well. But also we've talked about the use of live action and SpongeBob Mm -hmm. juxtaposed with 2D animation. In this episode, we have stop motion juxtaposed with these superimposed translucent Muppets to be the ghosts. Not Muppets with a capital M, obviously. (laughs) That might be the funniest thing I've said all week. (laughs) You know us intellectuals around here. (laughs) But the fact that we, it just creates a difference in movement and it was really exciting for me as an adult to see that juxtaposition. It really calls back to a lot of the ghostly cartoons earlier in the 20th century. And also back to the phantasmagoria and pulling out all of the stops in order to create this immersive experience. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I wanted to touch on that as we talk about The Legend of Boo Kini Bottom. Is it my favorite? No, but I think I now have a fondness for it. Yeah, there are just so many things that I think they attempted to bring into the episode that honor the tradition of animation and of Halloween. It doesn't always hit, but there are some... Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I, too, am fond of it for that reason. So let's move forward into Adventure Time. I am a big fan of Adventure Time. And I think that a lot of people might not be as fluent with it as they are with SpongeBob. I'm a casual viewer of Adventure Time, so I would be one of those people. Yeah. So once again, I will give a, a really nutshell description of it adventure time centers around a pair of brothers finn the human and jake the dog who are respectively a human and a dog they live in a tree house in the land of Ooh, which is the name of their planet and finn is a hero he does daring deeds because that's his calling the show gradually implies that there is a post-apocalyptic setting there was the great mushroom war that (laughs) precedes everything that we see and as you get way later in the series you get a lot more deep lore but the early seasons really just kind of throw whatever world building on the wall that they want and see what sticks and then later kind of plays with the repercussions of that so There are vampires, and there are candy people, and there are demons, and there's a whole region called the Nidosphere that is a netherworld, but there's also a colony on Mars. And I'm going to bring up characters like Peppermint Butler, and you're just going to have to accept that that's part of this reality and move on. And this might be the height of using your resources to do whatever you want. But it does come from that same tradition we've been talking about where, well, if you can draw whatever you can imagine, why not push it as far as possible? And why not have fun with it and defy the boundaries of what a live action show might be able to do? 
Right. I will say that SpongeBob acts more on what I would call kind of Looney Tunes logic, mm-hmm. where things can break and then not be broken the next frame because it's metaphoric for comedy's sake. Mm-hmm. In Graveyard Shift, SpongeBob is chewing on his fingernails and that gets exaggerated in the way it is shown to the point where he is like pulling his own arms out of a bucket of popcorn. Whereas Adventure Time uses it more in kind of superhero logic. Jake can stretch himself in a way that no live action or CGI would ever convincibly depict. Mm -hmm. But if Jake gets hurt, Jake gets hurt. It is not Tom and Jerry. Yeah, and there is, we can talk about this when we talk about the specific episodes, but there is a poignancy to Adventure Time that surpasses Spongebob. It goes deeper, and the emotional weight, I think, can get a lot heavier. Absolutely. Which is why people love it, right? Did I cry during the finale? Oh boy, did I cry during the finale. (laughs) So... Our first episode today is Heat Signature, Season 2, Episode 26. Finn the Human and Jake the Dog visit their friend Marceline the Vampire Queen to show her their favorite old movie, Heat Signature. When Finn and Jake ask Marceline to turn them into vampires, she and her ghost friends, Wendy, Boo Boo, and Georgie, pull a prank on the duo. With the help of their undead abilities, Marceline and the ghosts convince Finn and Jake that they've been transformed into vampires, but the ghosts' shenanigans turn progressively more violent. The ghosts invite Finn and Jake to a party at their house, only to reveal that they plan on sucking out the boys' brains instead. Marceline arrives to apologize to Finn and Jake, but even she is powerless to stop the ghostly trio. Finn laments that now they'll never watch Heat Signature together, drawing the ghosts' attention and leading to an impromptu movie night without any brain-eating. So, to me, this is an episode about the challenges of having diverse friendships. <laughs> no. What do you mean no? Are so you serious? I am I I mean I'm I'm being silly, but yeah, I okay. I mean I think there is something to this because what I got from this episode was we're in a world where a dog, a human, ghosts, and a vampire walk into a bar. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> are friends and there are challenges in, in that. It's wonderful because they learn from each other and they have to find ways to find common ground or float above common ground. But there are clear power imbalances. There are clear differences in ability that they're still feeling out with each other. There's conflict between the more supernatural friends and the live friends, right? Uh, so I, I know that's it's a little bit... I see what you mean. <laughs> I really thought that you were being completely silly, but I get where you're coming from, and I do think that one of my favorite aspects of this is when Marceline is first introduced, she is shown as this very menacing, threatening character who then is twisted into being actually kind of an ally. Mm-hmm. Look, man, I've been learning a lot about vampires lately. I realize now that my fear was based on ignorance. Speak. Hey, hey, Marceline, got a favor to ask, babe. And eventually she becomes a regular character that everybody loves and is completely harmless to our main characters. Right. But this is still relatively early on, and the show has only just introduced really 
the idea that Marceline doesn't drink blood. She just drinks the color red. Mm. And it's kind of a bait and switch that you have a vampire in this episode, but the thing that actually wants to feed on humans are ghosts. Mm. Yeah. Which is part of why I selected this one, because there are quite a few ghost episodes in Adventure Time. But this one is so bizarre for that part of the climax, that mm-hmm. the ghosts aren't just malevolent, the ghosts aren't just reckless about human life because they don't have those boundaries mm-hmm. or those limitations. The ghosts are actively trying to feed on the living in a way that ghosts do not normally do in media. Right. It, that's interesting because I didn't really, I, I think I have seen early episodes, but I didn't really know about the background of Marceline. And so knowing that she is not a typical vampire and also that she is friends with the main characters, it creates a, a problem of, well, we can't make vampires evil in the way that they normally are. So someone else or some other creature has to play that role and i guess in this case it's the ghosts right and there's a lot of lore with marceline to explore that's outside the purview of this podcast but Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right they do have to write around that yeah i also just to talk about friends a little bit more i was also thinking in this episode that for kids and for adolescents which i i feel like a main audience of Adventure Time is actually older kids and teenagers. This is an episode that invites questions about what do you do when your friends are doing things that are unacceptable or when you have friends from different places and they have different ideas of what a friendship should be. Like you bring everyone together to watch this movie, but these three friends usually do these things and these friends aren't usually exposed to that kind of behavior. And so I thought there was just a really kind of basic friendship story being told in this episode beyond the the confines of the supernatural. Yeah. What I want to think about coming to the movie is this apocalyptic setting, which is still implied at this point, but the fact that Heat Signature as a movie exists as long-forgotten media that Finn and Jake have, like, fought for a VHS of, and it's this... At the end, they literally say, can we go back to the brain-eating? Because it actually turns out to be a bad movie, Mm -hmm. and the ghosts like it. The ghosts are just living in the past, you know? Well, that's exactly (laughs) what I'm saying, is that it's this nostalgic thing, and so maybe those ghosts were alive when it was made, and it's, like, meaningful to them. That's speculation, but I think that that's interesting, that connection. Also, a central thing in the series is that Finn is the the human. We do not see other humans Uh for seasons and seasons. And these ghosts, we do ever see ghosts that look more like people. These ones all look like sheet ghosts, but one has two faces, I believe, stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Another one has ghost boobs. Yes. And, and they also have legs that sometimes appear okay. and sometimes disappear. I think if I remember correctly, I was re-watching it mm. this morning. And so it just... 
these ghosts don't like already sheet ghosts don't look like a person and i think this is really playing with that idea but in the land of ooh where you have all sorts of non-human sapient entities it does bring into question are these ghosts of people you literally cannot say right it's also worth noting that the ghosts are pranksters that's a common thing in media but there's not a lot to say about that, I think, in depth here. I think that what you said about kind of the idea of, like, peer pressure and just different backgrounds is a, is an interesting idea. And the idea of peer pressure also brings us to the intertextual, metatextual commentary in this episode, which is that the scene in which Finn and Jake are being convinced that they can fly and are being flown around by Marceline, if I recall correctly... Mm-hmm brings to mind the lost boys okay are you talking about the lost boys vampire movie yes okay i've only seen it once and so i was looking at the notes and i was trying to go back into the depths of my memory and recall this moment are they let's see if i can do this are the humans carried around by the vampires through the sky kind of like the never-ending story but scary so here's the thing (laughs) i haven't seen the lost boys i lived in santa cruz for however many years six years and that is famously a santa cruz movie okay but i never saw it i have it on dvd waiting for me to break it out and i just haven't yet Um, But the most iconic sequence in The Lost Boys is the bridge scene in which all of the vampires are holding on to this bridge and the human is and they're all letting go. And then he, I believe, eventually lets go too. And I do not know how he gets out of that. I think we should let Michael know what's going on. Yeah. Michael. Good night, Michael. Bombs away! But I feel like this scene where the ghosts bring Finn and Jake up onto this thing, this like dangerous precipice to fall off as they believe that they are vampires, it's obviously not a one-for-one. One. It isn't as direct as Nosferatu, but I, it definitely brings it to mind. Yeah, I think that's a, a good connection. It makes me want to revisit The Lost Boys. I actually went to a very, very fun party that was a Lost Boys-themed party that my, my friend, shout out to Danielle, I know you listen to this sometimes, um, that my friend Danielle hosted, and we had Chinese food, and there was a whole carnival display and themed cookies and stuff, and it was so much fun. Um, but I don't remember all the details of the movie, so I'll have to revisit that. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we talk about the next episode? Yes. Okay. All right, next is Ghost Fly, Season 6, Episode 17. In the midst of a rainy day, Jake is plagued with a general malaise. He fixes himself a pot of soup, a fly begins to slurp it up, and Jake kills the fly by swatting it. Late that night, Jake awakens to strange noises and discovers the fly's ghost haunting the treehouse. The fly ghost summons a scythe and chases Jake, Finn, and Bimo from their home. The trio calls upon Peppermint Butler to exorcise the fly, but it steals his implements and then dupes Finn so it can possess his body. Bimo uses their karate skills to stop Jake's heart, allowing his ghost to confront the fly on the astral plane. 
While avoiding the attacks of the ghost fly, Jake knocks over his pot of soup from that evening, and the ghost fly laps it up. Having completed his unfinished business, the fly begins to ascend, but Jake vindictively dispels its soul in an act of vengeance. Jake then wakes up in the Candy Kingdom Hospital, having been resuscitated by Dr. Princess. Okay, I love that we are dealing with the fear or anxiety of what if I kill this small, insignificant creature and it comes back to attack me? You know, anytime you kill an ant or a spider or a fly, there's always this... I'm saying you as if I'm projecting here, but anytime I kill a small creature, which I try not to do, I always think, what is going to be the karmic implication of all of these thousands of ants that I've killed? And so I love that the fly comes back as a ghost. I think it's such a everyday type of ghost that wields so much more power than you might expect. And that's just a a ton of fun. Right. That also comes up in Paranorman. He's being taunted and the bully squishes a fly and tells him to talk to its ghost. And Paranorman, or <laughs> Norman, <laughs> says that flies don't have ghosts, as if we should all know that. Mm-hmm. Well, in this episode, flies do have ghosts. And not just flies. So when they're in the astral plane, and the idea of time is very prevalent in Adventure Time's lore, reincarnation, for example, and how the land has changed over time. So when they enter the astral plane, there are just all of these ghosts that were just chilling in the treehouse with them. And they are everything from the ghost of a table, I think, to the ghost of a cat, to the ghost of a deer, and the two-headed duck. And Jake seems very turned off by this. He's kind of like, ugh. Is this is this what we get? Is this am I some sort of? I think I forget what he calls it, but it, it's like first level type thing. Like oh, he he refers to like it that. as some sort of uh, not higher plane, but yeah. maybe like the first level of a higher plane. Like we're not we're not quite in the the fancy part of heaven yet. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more or purgatory. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, limbo. this is like. Uh, what do you call it um, when you're, I, I fly so little, but um, this is like business class purgatory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We also see in this the idea of a ghost with an objective, which we've talked about a bit with the Flying Dutchman. Right. right. For the Flying Dutchman, it's not being laid to rest. And for this ghost, it's unfinished business. And we think that that is getting jake whatever that entails which it seems to at first but then his soul is able to transcend its soul is able to transcend what's it eats the damn soup (laughs) so it's just this tiny little thing and we can only hope that if ghosts are real and if we can become ghosts that something as small as not finishing your soup will not be enough to trap you (laughs) in this realm yes There's also the fact that Jake becomes a ghost while he's still alive. He gets his ghost surgery, as we've called it in the past. Yeah, kind of this Romeo and Juliet dead but not dead plot. Right, and they even plant unfinished business for him, so that way he won't just 
die straight up. It's Bimo's knock-knock joke. Yes, he has to hear the punchline of Bimo's knock-knock joke. Horror and comedy, baby. Ooh. See, we're not just making this stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also just so funny, like, the world building that you get there, that somebody can just stop their heart and have this... I couldn't decide if it was a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience when I was writing my notes. Mm. I think it's the latter. I mean, I guess it's a little bit of both. Yeah. it's He leaves his body in near-death. Yeah. On the astral plane, which perhaps is a, a common occurrence. I feel like I'm not I'm not a connoisseur of near-death experiences. I know there are people who are and who really collect those, but I feel like I've heard people talk about dissociative experiences where they are standing in the room with their body and, and seeing themselves laying there. Yeah. So I think those two can kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. I love that the Peppermint character is the one who is the exorcist. So Peppermint Butler, it's established throughout the series, has this connection to the Uki Spooky. He's woo-woo, and he's also, he is a close personal friend of death. Wow. He is seen, like, conjuring demons in his spare time. That is the problem in at least one episode. And it's intentionally this huge juxtaposition because he's got this wonderful little high voice and he's this adorable little almost toad from Mario kind of character design. You must overtake the vessel as night must overtake the day. By your very nature, you cannot deny my will. Hello, what jazz is this? <gasps> Peppermint Butler, that's the last straw. He's very cute and he's also... A peppermint, which I associate with freshness and purity. And so here comes the guy who is going to exercise the demons, and he is a minty, fresh presence. I just thought that was so clever. Yeah, and what I wanted to say, just because I'm tracking these throughout all of these episodes, is... It is a straight-up one-for-one exorcist reference here. His silhouette appearing... What an excellent day for an exorcism. (laughs) And that's, like many of these, not a reference that we expect these kids to necessarily get when they watch it for the first time. For me, that's something that's happened where I've seen the references in children's animation, and then I see whatever that piece of media was, and I'm like, oh... This is just like that. Yeah, so either when you return to it as an adult, you get to experience it in a whole new way. Or if you are a parent watching with your child, you get to enjoy it on an adult level that your kid might miss. Yeah, that's that's a very fun feature of television cartoons. Yeah, it's also funny because when you think about The Exorcist, normally the things that get referenced the most are pea soup, or the spider crawl down the stairs. And this is definitely number three. Mm-hmm. I've seen this that specific scene referenced in other media as well. But it's not the number one. And so it's nice that they don't go for the most obvious. Your mother scrubs docks in hell. Well, it just kind of shows how Adventure Time is elevated in its cultural references. You know, they use the phrase 
banishing ritual and he throws holy water and it's just they're willing to make these really particular references that might go over the heads of some viewers but the content is there and part of me thinks that's a very internet age type of thing because the viewers have access to Google and the creators have access to so much as well. And so they can bring in these really particular references and get really layered in the way that they're talking about consciousness and the astral, right? Like you might not expect a cartoon to use language like that. And that's what characterizes Adventure Time as its own unique phenomena. Yes, and also because it has all of this complex world building that they really just expect you to take for granted as you go. Yeah, there's candy people, move on. Yeah, there's a two-headed duck, who cares? They can also put in this more occult language that relates to the real world as part of their world building and just expect the viewer to accept that and keep moving, which I think is really nice. It's one of those things where if you let a kid watch it, then like when they're playing pretend, they're going to, you know, bring up alchemy or Uh the Necronomicon or something. And you're just going to be like, where did you learn that? Right. Yeah. And I just want to call myself out since we're talking about how intellectual we are and say that I just use the phrase, Unique phenomena fired. (laughs) Take that degree away. There can't be multiple of something unique. Unique phenomenon. Speaking. I totally wasn't listening to anything you said because I was just... uh, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I was. I just... I had to go... I had to backtrack there and just call my little self out. Okay. Our final (laughs) phenomenon of the evening. Our final phenomena... Phenomenon. Blank-eyed girl. Season 7, episode 19. And believe it or not, this is not an episode about me. (laughs) And the lack (laughs) of brain behind these eyes. Do you like self-deprecating humor? If not, send us an email at... gwp2pod at gmail.com and tell me how you hate to hear me put myself down. Blank-eyed girl. One night, while dining out, Finn and Jake are subjected to Starchy's late-night conspiracy theory radio show. A banana guard calls into the program and recounts his terrifying encounter with a blank-eyed girl. Finn takes the story seriously while Jake gets agitated and dismisses the matter as baloney. The two head home through the dark, scary woods and let their imaginations run away with them, but the real terror awaits them at the treehouse. They discover a blank-eyed girl knocking on the front door and call Starchy for advice. All Starchy's theories backfire until the treehouse is infested with six blank-eyed girls. Finn becomes convinced that the blank-eyed girls are tulpas and returns home determined to dispel them by ignoring them. Jake finally admits that it's not baloney, he's just afraid, at which point the blank-eyed girls unmask themselves. The girls remove their contact lenses, throw their wigs to the ground, unscrew their heads, revealing themselves to be made up of dandelion fuzz, and disperse themselves into the night air. And disperse them! 
them to the four winds. Yes, the winds. Thank you. So, the Blankhead Girls are obviously a commentary on the. S- Whoa. I don't know what word I was going to say. <laughs> so, the Blankhead Girls are obviously a commentary on the supernatural phenomenon of black eyed children, which are not typically interpreted as ghosts. They're typically interpreted as. I don't even know. Usually, like fair folk or aliens or something more government conspiracy in origin. Well, I'm not actually familiar with this, but I think it's very funny that you're not able to decide what these things are because that's exactly the problem in this episode. Yeah. Which is that the conspiracy theorist who acts like he knows everything and everyone else is out of the loop can't actually give advice on how to interact with these girls because he thinks they're uh fae and then he thinks that they're vampire rules comes up. Right, vampire rules, fae rules, feed them milk, you know, uh then tulpas, which seems to be the closest thing that they could be. Yeah, but they seem to be if you want to make hard rules for them, which I am not inclined to do. Mm-hmm. It seems that they probably are manifested or at least obey fear because once Jake admits to his fear, then they stop being creepy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they actively make the decision like, our job is done now because he's decided that he's afraid. He's not going to continue to deny his fear. Right. And there's obviously a question of whether they are ghosts. I'm not really trying to say that they're ghosts, but there is something also about, once again, like corporeality that these creepy little things take off their heads and they're just dandelion fluff that goes into the wind. It almost They almost look like stars, like animate stars before yeah. they go outside. They're definitely some sort of entity that exists outside of a corporeal form. Yeah. Which in a broad sense makes them a ghost. And I think that the imagery of dandelions being blown, because while a dandelion being blown is its method of seed dispersal, it is also to us like you pluck it out of the ground, killing it to some degree. So there's an ephemerality and a uh, uh, liminality to them and the fact that they kind of just existed to be scary and then vanish. Right. The question of what they are is very central to this episode because if you don't know what something is, it makes it difficult to know how to deal with it. And like you're suggesting, that's never really answered. They What they are is ephemerality. They really are representative of a ghost or a monster in the sense that they live in this unpinnable state. Right. Um, They defy binaries. 
They defy comprehension. They defy categorization. And we can also say that they do things that they're not supposed to do, not only by not existing, but also like they enter the house when they're not supposed to, and yet they don't menace. They menace through not menacing. And so this incomprehensibility is also part of how they are policing the borders of the possible because Mm -hmm. they are doing things that you don't expect them to do and don't want them to do, but they aren't violent. But it's almost the threat that like, but why aren't they violent? Yeah. There's also the element of the thing that you are afraid of being in your mind, which harkens back to the SpongeBob episodes we were talking about, where because something is not acting, your mind creates a story about it. And when it's something that is as strange as these girls, what are they called? Black eyed girls. Blank eyed girls. <laughs> Black Eyed Peas. I'm sold 3,008. You sold 2,000 and late. Black Eyed Children is the UFOlogy or whatever you want to call it phenomenon. Okay, so when it's something like that that you've never seen before that has a eerie presence, you can create a story of it being really dangerous, even when you have no proof that it is. Which would make the moral of this episode the fear of the unknown, that Mm -hmm. it's okay to be afraid, but admit it and learn that perhaps the unknown thing is not actually posing any threat to you. Right. I think when we talk about the fear of the unknown, we have to talk about conspiracy theories, which is another very adult problem that is and political problem that is brought into this cartoon that I think is really interesting. And one of the things that was most interesting to me, and I think I already touched on this, is that the radio host who spends all his time talking about what things really are, when he's faced with the actual supernatural All these categories and definitions are not useful. In fact, they might even be harmful because they're escalating the fear in the situation. And so this just brings up so many possible avenues of conversation about the way conspiracies function in society and how conspiracy theories overlap with ghosts and that deep, deep desire to make solid what is ineffable. And I think that that's a very base human impulse that we see both in ghost hunting and in conspiracy theory that overlaps quite nicely in this episode, which, as you said, does something beautiful in the sense that it refuses to define these ghosts it, it, it talks more about what it means to interact with them and to, to fear them or to, to give up your fear of fear itself and just allow yourself to respond. 
and experience things. Exactly. Yeah. What I think is interesting about bringing up conspiracy theories, which are baked in to the episode, is when you look at these characters as, I can't decide if I'm going to say Tulpa or Tulpa, mm. um, as Tulpas that, and even when that becomes not exactly accurate, if we are going to say that they're kind of animated by fear, that that is part of conspiracy theories, right? That like you believe this thing and it's always coming out of this fear of lack of power. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes you end up creating a real problem out of something that didn't exist before because of those fears. Right. And, And tulpas are all about collective consciousness and about using the power of the mind to create something almost tangible out of nothing. And so I think that sometimes conspiracy theorists do that, or in the very least, they create ideas and full communities and careers, radio programs, YouTube channels, message boards about these things that maybe have no basis in factual reality, but have started to become part of the cultural conversation because so many people buy into it. Ooh, look at me. I'm listening to a dumb nonsense radio show. How can you be so dismissive after some of the stuff we've seen? You got to draw the line somewhere. Starts with my line. They're walking fish that just happen to look like little girls. Baloney! And they create realities, even if, the theory is not true. They create a reality for themselves in which it is, and they mm-hmm. live in a world that obeys that logic. Mm-hmm. And so when Finn is able to say, this is a tulpa, a tulpa is appropriated from Tibetan folklore and is a thought form, essentially. It is a a monster or what have you that is a personified idea that because you believe in it, it becomes so. Mm-hmm. When Finn comes up with that theory, that is how he decides it must be defeated. And even though that is not accurate, ignoring it doesn't solve the problem. It leads to the actual solution of Jake admitting his fear and admitting that it's not baloney, in which I, I think that it means not saying that it's not fake but Mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter whether it's fake or not it's having an emotional impact on him right and i think we know that if you ignore a monster that is not what makes it go away the monster is repression right in fact it strengthens the monster if you refuse to acknowledge that thing. So the fact that facing your fears and facing this undefinable entity for what it is, which in a certain way, it really can just be defined as a fear because we don't know what it quote unquote is in terms of <laughs> there's my my like annoying uh we don't know what it quote unquote like is like capital i is Um, (laughs) we don't we don't know what it is but 
we do know that it produces fear. And on a practical level, that is what it is for the characters. That is how it functions in their lives. And so that's really what matters is the reaction to the emotion of it, not how you can define it in a category. Right. Now, in discussing what the weakness of the blank-eyed girl is and what rules she obeys, what threat she poses, and ignoring her doesn't solve her, do you know what pop culture reference I think that this is? Oh, it's not even a question. This is clearly a send-up of the ring. Yeah, they all look like this kind of cute version of Sadako or Samara, which is obviously intentional, I believe. Yeah, again, if you have any sort of exposure to horror media, you have seen this image of the ghostly woman with the long, straight black hair. It's so deeply a part of pop culture at this point. Cindy, the TV's leaking! Right, which is obviously throughout all of these episodes, the pop culture references are for the adults or for the spooky kids who get them. They're playing off common imagery that is known to be effective in sparking fear and in having these implications of the gothic and what have you. But it also, I think, is giving children social scripts. You have this thing Mm -hmm. that is the scary thing in the collective unconscious because of these iconic works of horror media. And when you're making a statement about fear that I think kind of like Bettelheim says of fairy tales that is supposed to provide a social script for the child to apply in other situations. If you're trying to make a message about fear, Mm -hmm. what better way than to use a commonly feared icon, the man door, hand hook, car door, Samara, the exorcist. Nosferatu. Nosferatu. (laughs) Why did I French him? Uh, You Frenched him. (laughs) No! (laughs) Frenching with Nosferatu. Let it be known that Quest just Frenched Nosferatu. (laughs) And I was there. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Okay. Um, (laughs) I think it also allows people to blow off some steam when it comes to these cultural images of fear because it takes them out of their scary context and i've said this before when we were talking about spongebob but it allows us to to take things that typically would be truly threatening and put them into an absurdist cartoon setting where we can get some distance from them and process the thing itself in a different way. And so that's also a function of bringing horror into fun cartoons. And intertwining horror with comedy. 
drink every time I call something fun in this episode and drink every time we say we're combining horror with comedy. <laughs> and throughout the podcast, drink every time we go, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Hi, you've reached Quest and Annabelle. Leave a message after the ooh. <laughs> okay, now that you are properly plastered, I think it's time to wrap up this episode. What I thought this was ghosts, not mummies. Uh, (laughs) so one theme that i got throughout these is this idea of transgression and punishment which is rather deep for this but it's just the idea that like spongebob repeatedly is breaking these rules that the flying dutchman wants him to abide by and then decides that spongebob must be punished for Mm mm-hmm and you can see a similar thing with Ghostfly, I think, that Jake is being punished by the fly for not living and let live. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, there is this relationship between the everyday world and the supernatural world that revolves around justice and a certain type of setting the laws of the universe straight i would even just say maybe more accurately than justice it's just consequences Mm. because i'm also thinking about how we can see squidward's mean-spirited prank then backfires by targeting him Mm -hmm. and that in the blank-eyed girls it is the consequence of hearing this story at the beginning And the consequence of Jake repressing his fear. That's not so much, of course, transgression and punishment, but it is this idea that the ghost is a consequence Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. That you do X and then the ghost appears to remind you that X needs to be dealt with still. And part of the humor in The Flying Dutchman being scared by spongebob is that the consequences go the other way that rather than the ghost being a consequence spongebob is the consequence for the ghost who's being punished for uh trying to scare him or uh trying to i think that he's punished for standing up for his culture his vindictiveness yeah because I, I don't recall exactly what the story Squidward and Mr. Krabs tell at the beginning is, but it's just that he is reaping souls. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an argument that SpongeBob's soul is not ripe for reaping. <laughs> like, he's just come for SpongeBob because he's mad at him. Yeah. You know, it's not really about, like, oh, it's your time or, oh, you've really crossed me exactly. Yeah, it is kind of... Well, both episodes that we talked about with the Flying Dutchman revolve around his own ego when it comes to him telling SpongeBob he can't be scary. He's suggesting that, you know, he's the scary one and that there's a way that things work in his world and he wants to set that in stone. Like, we're not, you're not stepping on my ghostly toes here you're not um, stepping on my tail you're not stepping on my tail my my ectoplasmic floating flotation device 
Um, uh, and then with the stop motion episode, there's this sense that, again, he wants to maintain his power in being the one who's able to scare people on Halloween and or scare sea folk on Halloween. And, and so the fact that he is not able to do that with SpongeBob, it's, it's his whole ego trip is the reason he's going after him. So like you said, SpongeBob's not supposed to die in the greater, I guess that's why I say justice, because it's, it's almost like there's a, a, a divine justice or a, a divine sense of cause and effect that is supposed to work a certain way. And when these characters defy that, it has to be set straight for us to feel satisfied. Because the monster polices the borders of the possible. Right, and we can't have things being set queer. (laughs) I'll tell you what. (laughs) Another convention throughout almost all of these episodes is the sharing of a ghost story. Mm -hmm. We have it in Scaredy Pants, we have it in Graveyard Shift, we have it in Blank-Eyed Girls, and also the idea of an urban legend, the things that you cannot verify, but they get passed through word of mouth. And, oh, I know somebody who saw, and here's the scary story that you haven't heard from the Krusty Krab. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the monster's body is a cultural body, but in the inverse, it's not... As we mean with regards to this podcast that we don't want to know about the ghost that you think you saw at your apartment. It's that we are talking about the ghost as a literary device that can be read. Mm -hmm. But in these specific cartoons, the monster's body is a cultural body because sharing its cultural body summons it. Which is also interesting. I didn't think about this yet. The the idea of transmission, that's exactly what the ring is about. And yeah. the fact that, to some degree, the Blanket Girls are transmitted through the radio. Right. The conspiracies of the radio host, in some sense, make possible the tulpa, the particular image of these girls who may have arrived as something else in a different situation, but because this radio host has been spreading the idea that these are a threat and this is something people should worry about, that's how they arrive. And in the same way, the hash-slinging slasher is willed into existence by Squidward's environment, by working the night shift as a fry cook and coming up with all of these all of this imagery and this story that comes from his own cultural context. And what I think is particularly poignant as works of children's media is that both of those episodes hinge on the idea of your imagination running away with you. Mm -hmm. That had that man appeared at the Krusty Krab in the exact same circumstances, but without Squidward having told that story, they probably would not have been scared and they probably would not have interpreted it in the way that they did. Right. And so it shows that kind of what we say kind of every episode is belief in the ghost conjures a ghost. 
Right. And also that because belief is changeable, we can use that belief to work with fear, which a lot of the characters do in these episodes. Right. It's all about who is the horror object and who is the target of the fear. And so SpongeBob is repeatedly the person being plagued by fear and encountering a horror object. And in two of those stories, he becomes the horror object. He is actually scarier. And in the other, he learns that what was scary was actually innocuous. Mm -hmm. I would say that it's also the ghosts in Heat Signature end up becoming defanged. That's not quite about meekness, but it is that we thought they were harmless and they turn out to be harmful, but then we learn how to live with them. Mm -hmm. The ghost fly is what you were talking about earlier is the definition of like something small and unassuming being actually powerful and having consequences. Right. The thing that we ignore And then the blank-eyed girls are really walking that line of, like, they seem to be meek, and yet their meekness is what is unsettling. Right, that's their power, is their refusal to act. Right, and also that in the Adventure Time episodes, Jake is typically our Mm scaredy-cat character. He is the one fleeing the ghost fly. He's the one afraid of the... He's the one afraid of the blank-eyed girls. And so it's about finding how do you have power in the face of fear. Right. How do you overcome it? And that sort of previews our next episode, which is going to be on Luigi's mansion. Oh, my gosh. I just had a moment where I was going to call it Luigi's Manor. That's a little bit too fancy. But, yeah, Luigi's mansion where you have this sort of fearful second the second player the second banana uh facing his his fears by being put right in the midst of what's most terrifying right people people love the underdog arc yeah yeah and what is most terrifying we find throughout these is the body That though the ghost represents what has been removed from the body or a body that is no longer present, we have the horror of the severed hand of the hand slinging. (laughs) The hand slinging hasher. (laughs) The hash slinging slasher. We have SpongeBob's brain and the contents thereof. And then we have these ghosts trying to suck Finn and Jake's brains out of their heads. Yeah, so we have this presence of the abject, which reminds us that the reason ghosts are scary in the first place is because they are separate from our body and because they remind us of what our body is capable of, what our body is, and what our body will eventually become, which is nothingness, no longer a central identity. What's occurring to me right now, of course, also, is the thing I never liked about Billy and Mandy, though it had a lot of appeal for me as somebody who likes the spooky and somebody who likes the mythological, was all of the snot Mm. all of the time. And I was just thinking that we have 
body horror, but there's also the concept of body humor, of poop jokes, fart jokes, <laughs> booger jokes. Um, gross. <laughs> and that that is something that you typically find in children's media. Yeah. And it's once again just reinforcing that these are two sides of the same coin, that these are these things that we feel tense about, and so we can either make media that builds on that and makes you frightened, or we can make media that makes you laugh about it. Yeah, that's a great intersection there, body humor and body horror, uh, which brings us to something that get ready, get your shot glasses ready, uh, that we have mentioned quite a few times, which is horror and comedy, humor and horror. We don't really need to recap this too much, but just to to bring us back to what inspired a lot of the contents of this episode, we got a lot of examples of how humor and horror can intersect both in moments like the exposure of, oh my God, I almost called him Hamlet. <laughs> both in moments like. <laughs> I'm sorry, are we talking about Hamlet Bob Square Bridges? Oh, Sponge Hamlet, excuse me. We, we get the intersection of humor and horror in the types of moments like the exposure of SpongeBob's brain where you both are laughing and going ew at the same time but also the examples where the horror becomes diffused like seeing all of the strange cute animal and inanimate object creatures that are in the astral realm when Jake dies and goes to fight the fly. <laughs> it's, it makes me laugh to even recap that, you know? And so both types of overlap are present in, in these cartoons. And they're both really important fixtures of media. Right. And these cartoons are uniquely equipped to deal with that buildup of tension and that release of tension that are necessary for both horror and comedy. And we see it in the ways that they play with medium, that the ways that they play with meta commentary and intertextuality, the ways they play with things that cannot be done in any other medium than animation. Right. And I think SpongeBob leans more toward the making light of things that are horrifying side of things and adventure time leans a little bit more toward dealing with really deep fears by releasing some laughter. Right. I mean, we haven't even, I promised it at the beginning when Finn and Jake go to the library looking for a book on the blank eyed girls or something that will give them any hint. They pass by a book. There's all of these books and they say like girl stuff, guy stuff, dog stuff. And one of the books is called butt stuff. And this is in a moment in the episode where you really feel like something is at stake. Like you feel like they are in real danger, which is something I feel you don't get as much in SpongeBob. You don't feel like there's the possibility that your heart is going to be ripped out 
<laughs> maybe other parts of your body, but... <laughs> Or if you do, they're going to put it back in a second and then put a Band-Aid over exactly. it. Exactly. And and I think in Adventure Time, you get more of a sense that something really bad could happen. But then in the midst of that, butt stuff comes up. <laughs> and so you have that overlap of something that makes you laugh and something that makes you nervous or anxious. And that overlap takes us back to the point that I've been making about how these episodes help children move through scary situations. They see their characters that they love in a scary situation themselves, but one that is not so scary that the kid is too afraid of watching it, and then they can, as a child living in a world that's not designed for them, that is filled with scary and trying circumstances, they can approach those situations having seen their role models of SpongeBob, of Finn, of Jake go through something similar. And by lightening that with humor, it makes it palatable and it makes it something that you want to recall, you want to experience, and then later apply into your life. It's also empowering. It's so empowering. I think that's where I really want to end is how... These episodes are so empowering. Yeah, to think that you have the ability to change your mind and change the world that you live in with your mind, that you have the power to, and I, I hate to bring it back to this, but decide that scary equals funny if you want to, but also to to experience more profound and, and realistic changes in the way that you see the world even if it does frighten you that's that's really empowering be the horror you wish to see in the world be the ghost that scares the other ghosts if you want to keep laughing with us and finding out when we're posting new episodes which are sometimes a little unpredictable you can follow us on Instagram or Tumblr at Ghosts Were People Too. If you'd like to channel us, you can email us at gwp2pod at gmail.com. That is gwp2pod at gmail.com. And as it says on the Ouija board, goodbye. goodbye.